Welcome back for another episode of The Art of Healing. I'm your host and therapist friend, Trevor Hansen. And just a quick reminder, at the time of this recording, I, Trevor Hansen, am a master's level student therapist, and I'm not a fully licensed therapist. I practice therapy, but under the supervision of fully licensed therapists. This show is not therapy, nor is it a substitute for therapy. On today's episode, I have the privilege of introducing you to one of my friends and an amazing therapist, Adam Moore. When a spouse looks at pornography, it can really feel detrimental. It can feel like they're actually cheating, and in a lot of ways they are. And Adam specializes in helping couples as well as individuals who struggle with a pornography addiction, as well as when one spouse maybe steps beyond pornography and actually acts out sexually with another person outside of the marriage. Adam has been helping couples and individuals in this way for 15 years. And today's episode is really special because he answers some of the questions that you have proposed to me via social media and other places about this topic, about pornography use, about unwanted sexual sexual behaviors or, or habits. Adam jumps in and answers questions such as, what do I do with the apathy behind my addiction? How can I support a spouse who struggles with pornography? What does the healing journey look like as far as getting to a place of sobriety? How can my relationships become an asset to help me through my pornography addiction? These questions and many more things we address today on this podcast. If you're looking for a therapist and you'd like to learn more about my therapy services, you can always go to trevorthetherapist.com. You can also find me on TikTok and Instagram at The Art of Healing by Trevor. And on both those platforms, I have a link in my bio where you can find other incredible and free resources. One of those resources that I just added was a couple's worksheet. This is a worksheet for understanding what we call your negative cycle, because all couples get into this little bit of a dance. It's kind of based on emotionally focused therapy by Sue Johnson, where one couple responds in one way, or one partner responds in one way, and the other partner in turn responds in another way. But behind those responses, there's subtle emotional content and motivations behind it. This worksheet helps you to dissect your own relationship, so hopefully you can get some insight into how to do things maybe a little bit different to create greater closeness and connection. Again, if you would like that resource, head over to either my Instagram or TikTok, click in the link in my bio, then go to download worksheet, um, and there you can find that resource. Now, let's jump into my conversation with Adam Moore. Thanks, Adam, for joining me. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. Well, I wanted to jump in and and kind of introduce our topic today. I introduced it a little bit in the introduction, but specifically, Adam works with um, people in the world of sexual addiction, pornography addiction, and also the relational element, the the trauma that that happens for a partner when they're, you know, experiencing uh, their their partner, you know, stepping outside the relationship, whether it be with another person or with pornography. Uh, does that does that encapsulate things correctly? That is add? the vast majority of what I do. I, I mean, I do I do other stuff. Sometimes I do standard traditional marriage counseling, or somebody comes in with depression. But right. most of the time, I have a pretty extensive waiting list these days, and you don't usually sit on a long, long waiting list unless you've already seen seven therapists and you've tried everything you can think of. So yeah. I get kind of the most challenging of the most challenging. When people get to that point where, you know, they've seen seven therapists and they're willing to wait, like what's, 
it, is there a common thing? Like what's, what's going on? Is it normally the person who's experiencing like the addiction or is it the spouse? Uh, it's almost always the spouse who's driving treatment. Um, at least the waiting in line mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, just because there's a certain level of desperation that yeah. I think happens for people, especially if you have actually seen seven therapists, right? People get to this point and they go that, that either no one can help us or it has to be some mythical being. Right. <laughs> and apparently I get put into the mythical being category, <laughs> uh, which I try to dispel that myth right off the bat. I go, listen, I, I'm a regular person. Uh, and, and you know, I'm, my approach is tailored to the individual. So what you won't get with me is a cookie cutter uh, therapy treatment process. Like you wouldn't be able to predict necessarily what I was going to do Mm -hmm. because I don't know what I'm going to do until I start talking to people. And I think that's part of what uh, people appreciate and why they refer their friends and family to me is it feels like a really uniquely tailored therapy experience and not just i opened the handbook of treating problematic sexual <laughs> behaviors and it was like page one right that even does bring up a good point is that you know each person's process of healing this show being called the art of healing everyone's process is going to look different and individual and so it's not to say you know bob and jill down the street did it this way and so i have to be able to do it that way or else or else i'm a failure that's the biggest problem right off the bat that I see in therapy. One of the biggest mistakes I see people making in their own healing process is comparing themselves to other people. And it's the inherent problem you get when there is an existing community of healing for a particular issue. So whether you're going to a group of grieving parents or whether you're going to a support group for people whose children have schizophrenia, or in my context, whether you're a person going to say a 12 step meeting, uh, sexaholics anonymous or whatever it may be. Uh, there's an immediate comparison that's happening with people. They look at the leaders, uh, of the groups. They look at their peers and they say, apparently this is how it's done. And so if my uh, experience is not lining up with theirs, then there's probably something wrong. And that is an inherent risk in uh, getting people together with other people to heal. And yet I still am a huge fan of uh, social support for healing because I think it is dramatically better than, of course, people just trying to do it on their own. How does social support and healing look then if we're trying not to put in this backbone of comparison um, for, and and I think this kind of follows and we can go a lot of different directions with this, but this follows one of the questions that I got um, from someone was, you know, what should, what should a wife or a spouse um, of somebody who's dealing with addiction or a friend, I guess you could say, but specifically like that close relational partner, what can they do to be helpful? And should they be helpful? Like, is that your support person? Cause that's also a question. It says, you yeah. know, I, I don't know if I'm going to tell my you know spouse about me acting out in pornography. Cause that's again, re-traumatizing them. I think in, in, comparison is inherent in our existence as humans. You don't know, um, you don't know anything except by comparison. So people say, well, stop comparing yourself. Yeah, good luck. I mean, that's what people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's inherent. So 
I'm not as worried about the fact that people are going to compare themselves, but what I want them to look at is, can I evaluate my experience simultaneously using the inherent comparisons that I will do naturally, uh, but also through a process of self-compassion and as Kristen Neff calls it, common humanity. Kristen Neff is a friend of Brene Brown and she has, she does work on self-compassion. She talks about common humanity, which is actually my entire approach to therapy can probably be boiled down into essentially a common humanity uh, experience, or as I call it, a phenomenological approach to therapy. That is, I don't look at health from the perspective of ideals. I look at health from the perspective of averages, basically. I say, I want to look at the average human and how they actually respond to real world events. And then I'm going to sort of compare, as we do, I'm going to compare uh, people I'm working with to how the average human is, re is, is responding. If the average human is going to function in a certain way, then I would say if you're doing it about that way, you're normal, even if it doesn't fit what you, what you perceive to be an ideal. And I think that's one of the issues that you run into right off the bat, in addition to comparison, uh, or I guess as a part of the comparison, is that people are comparing themselves to some ideal that's floating around out there, whether it is uh, a health ideal uh, based on university training or books or an expert, whether it's a spiritual or religious ideal based on how you are supposed to be, whether it's a moral or ethical ideal. Ultimately, I prefer to look at people from the lens of what does the average human being do in similar circumstances. I think that perspective gives people a lot more flexibility and leeway to be normal and to be having a normal struggle than to look at themselves and say, what on earth is wrong with me? How far have I gotten from this supposed ideal, which is actually four standard deviations away from the norm and actually literally impossible to right. achieve? I think that's a huge part of what people come in for. Uh, in our treatment approach, we look at uh, what we call distress quadrants. And this uh, that type of person fits into quadrant two in our approach, which says the behaviors themselves are actually probably less problematic in terms of causing actual damage in my life uh, than my perception of the behavior. So my internal consequences I'm setting for myself immense amounts of shame or, you know, trying to prove my value through perfectionism or whatever it may be, actually may be creating more problems. It's not to say that, say, you know, the pornography use or maybe more importantly, the attendant lying, deceiving, and sometimes gaslighting. Sometimes people, we could, I could talk all day about my, my issues with the overuse of the term gaslighting, but that may be another <laughs> episode. Uh, anyway, I, I think, yeah, it's not to say that that's, those things are not problematic. They certainly can be on their own, but to end up in therapy, you may be having any number of things going on that may be driving the, the, the level of distress that's causing you to be there. And it may not necessarily be the behavior. So is it useful to get in and show up and say, okay, here's how I stack up against other people with this similar problem? Sure. Uh, is it potentially problematic? Yes. That's why I want to start people from scratch and say, 
let's just look at your value system. Let's articulate what your values are. Let's articulate why your behavior, why not that your behaviors, but why your behaviors are not lining up with your core values. And let's, who are the stakeholders and why, why are they upset? Cause people often there's other people upset. Right. Um, and then how do we use the, uh, the support system for actual help? Well, you need to start with a support system that actually supports you, not just a bunch of people that are, you're going to tattle on yourself to, uh, and either be in trouble with, or be able to give them a thumbs up. That's a decent starting point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what we've, we've perceived as, as a support system in some of the conversations that I've heard about, you know, addiction recovery in general, but specifically pornography addiction is that, you know, I want an accountability partner. And oftentimes I feel like that term just turns into what you're saying, that guy that you tell on yourself to, he says, okay, like, what are you going to do different? Don't do it again. Yeah. Yeah, Don't, don't do it. It's a probation officer really. Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly not a good, and answering your other question, which is, so how should a spouse be involved or not involved? Mm-hmm. That's certainly not a good role for a marital relationship. And the reason is it's a, it's a really ugly power differential. It sets up a parent-child relationship between two. And so one adult's job is to say whether they are are or are not disappointing <laughs> the other person. And then that person is either supposed to say one of two things, either yep, you are definitely disappointing me and I need you to knock it off or you're doing a good job, pat you on the head and you know, keep, keep at it. So I think the question of how much to what extent and what type of involvement a spouse should have, of course is personal, but generally speaking, uh, I think let's say, and we'll use some gender stereotypes here for a minute simply because they're treatment stereotypes generally speaking, women don't seek treatment for problematic sexual behaviors uh, unless they've gotten really, really, really out of control, at least in our clinic. We've seen, I don't know, five, six, 7,000 people and relative to the men coming in seeking help who are usually dragged in by a wife, there are very few women, maybe, maybe 1%, 2%. I don't know. It's not many. So let's just talk from that other perspective of a man who is married to a woman, uh, which is the vast majority of the clients we see. This is a guy who's coming in probably at the request or the demand of his wife. And early on in the process is really there to appease his wife. So it's likely with a lot of the guys that we see that they're ready to do whatever it takes. They're like, you know what? Or at least say they'll do whatever it takes. Uh, Whatever I have to do, I'll attend meetings, I'll do therapy, I'll write in the journal, I'll do anything. Uh, And so a lot of times this is the first time that this woman in this relationship has felt any type of stability or predictability in her husband's commitment to honesty and integrity around his sexual behaviors with her. So it's easy for her to go, Oh my gosh, I'm going to take this and run with it. I, uh, you know, I, this is the first time that I feel confident that someone's going to help me hold this guy accountable. Cause he keeps saying he'll do stuff and, and avoiding really being honest about it. So it's hard to get people out of that mindset once they get into it. Yeah. You know, a lot of early treatment stuff we see, is guys will come in and they're very penitent. They're very like, okay, whatever I got to do. And then we're six months in 
And it's like, how do we get back the even power relationship that should exist in, in, in a marriage when there's some anxiety on a wife's part of, well, if I step back and I stop checking in on him and having him and reminding him and all that, what if he just falls right back into it? I don't know how to get out of that pattern. So that's a really long setup to say for a wife who's asking how much or to what extent or how do I support my husband? She needs to be doing two things. One, she needs to decide to what level early on she wants to have him be accountable to her. But two, she also needs to be doing her own work to be able to start to let go of control over whether her husband gets better, commits to do what he says he's going to do, actually does it. And ultimately, and this is the real kicker, what his behaviors or lack of behaviors actually mean about her. Because typically speaking, when someone is heavily, heavily invested in a spouse's health in their, you know, change processes, almost universally, there's going to be a little component in there that says, if you don't get better, it means you don't love me or I'm inherently unlovable, or I made a bad decision in marrying you, or everyone's going to look at me and think I'm an idiot for having stayed with somebody. And so there's something that means something about me and that needs to get addressed pretty early on. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of derived meaning that comes from that. And it's really hard not to pull out that meaning. I mean, we, we do that on smaller issues all the time. Um, you know, I come as a spouse comes home, doesn't necessarily have an engaging conversation and they're playing on their phone. And all of a sudden that means that like, I'm not your friend and you don't care about me. That's exactly. Well, you know, in my own marriage, I've seen that before. Like I expect <laughs> selfishly that if no matter what my wife's doing, if I ask her a question, she will immediately put down whatever she's <laughs> doing and pay a hundred percent attention to me. And if not, then it means, yeah, like you said, she means she doesn't care or whatever, or somehow our marriage is in danger. Uh, so what we're talking about here are normal relational processes that have gone askew. So would you say that part of, part of, I guess, shifting that power differential or giving, we'll, we'll say the addicted spouse or the betraying spouse or the whatever, the one mm -hmm. who's acting out, helping them to regain a voice or kind of regain some power within that situation. How, how do you approach hmm. that? Well, that's a longer term part of a treatment process because to be honest, early on, they don't show up in therapy because somebody's mildly annoyed. They mm -hmm. show up in therapy because they they can't figure out what else to do. You don't pay that kind of money and spend that kind of time unless you have tried everything else you could think of. So the last thing as a therapist I want to do right off the bat is start saying to the person, who, you know, and again, let's, let's use this context. Right. The context is not a guy who's open about his behaviors and, you know, occasionally looks at porn and says, Hey, here's what's going on. Where I'm talking in this particular context, we could talk a hundred hours if, if about all the different ways this plays out. But in this context, we'll say a guy who's been hiding it because if he's afraid of upsetting his wife or creating conflict or her being upset at him, which is actually the most common thing. 
I don't want my wife to be upset at me. I don't like how it feels when someone else is upset at me. So I'm just going to hang on to this information kind of thing. So it's self-preservation, right? Mm -hmm. A couple like that, when the wife's coming in going, this guy is constantly either telling me whatever he thinks I want to hear and then doing whatever he wants on the back end or just lying to my face. And so I don't even know to what extent I can really trust this person. You have to start by leaning toward the person who's been betrayed and saying, this is a real thing. This is an actual problem. It's not my job that especially that early in therapy to evaluate publicly to the person, whether their expectations of marriage are realistic. Mm -hmm. I don't want to in my first therapy session, I'm not going to say, well, you're expecting way too much out of this guy. That's a quick way to get fired (laughs) (laughs) as a therapist. And it's just foolish because you're, you're dealing with somebody who's often in experiencing some significant trauma. So uh, early on, what you're looking at is leaning toward the, the person who's been betrayed. So they understand they're being heard, that their story is real, that I'm, you know, that I'm actually going to pay attention to what their experience is and really allowing this, the, the other person, the quote unquote addict, right. We could go on and on about that right, term right. as well, but we won't, it's just really <laughs> fast to say it. Yeah. Uh, but allowing that person to take some real accountability and to say, I've hurt you. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I've done violated our either explicit or implicit marital contract. uh, And so we need to do some work down the line. And it may be a year, it may be two years into therapy or they've already graduated and they're doing this work later down the line. They will often need to adjust their power dynamic in the relationship, but that usually can't happen until uh, the, the guy in this context actually gets out of a child role anyway, because to say appeasing things to your spouse and then do the opposite is a very childlike or teenager thing to do Yeah. or to lie and sneak around on the back end is still a childlike thing to do. So I'm not surprised that she's showing up into an adult role. He's kind of inviting it. He's like, Hey, Mm -hmm. I need to be parented, you know? So when he can act like an adult, which is why I say to people, I would much rather you say to her, look, I'm not ready to stop watching porn. I want to stop. I know ultimately this is not what I want in my life, but if I'm being completely honest, I'm clearly not ready to stop yet because I don't know how to stop. I would much rather you be saying an honest statement like that so that she can go, okay, I don't like that, but that rings truer than anything you normally say to me. That's actually more hopeful then yeah, everything's going to be fine. I would rather you start telling the truth. I'd rather you start to say things like, I don't have the capacity to deal with the distress that's happening right now in my life, my work, my relationship, our marriage, whatever. And all I want to do is run away and escape. And porn seems like the easiest way. I would much rather that honest conversation happen. That's an adult way to deal with things uh, than than all the sneaking around. Once we get to that point, excuse me, once we get to that point and the wife has the capacity to go, okay, well, I've got an honest, I, I asked for an honest person. Now I've got an honest person in front of me. I may not like his honesty. I may not like what he's trying to say, but at least it's, it's honest. Now, where do we go from here? Okay. Now we can start working on power differential issues, but you mm. know what? Sometimes it takes a year to get to that point. Yeah, it's true. And I think that's part of, I think it, 
the the betraying partner having that like you said acting in those more adult type behaviors and uh, being able to own the fact that says yeah i'm i did betray this situation and so i might not have the voice that i would like in this very moment and having that realization i think can can be really helpful and also it's i believe it's starting to build the first layer of like safety i mean of she's probably also in this situation, she is probably going to be pretty closed down and not very like emotionally vulnerable, not feeling safe with him Yeah, because there's no she? reason. No, no, there's no reason. <laughs> and so, I mean, and you look at even just the, the circular, you know, pattern that's going to happen there where then, you know, he's not feeling like he's good enough or lovable to her because she's not being willing to be open. But taking that first step of being honest is kind of laying, I feel like laying that first foundation to create the safety that will then lead to more emotionally engaging conversations where each partner is feeling like they're fulfilled in their roles. It's fair. It's there's a great parallel to therapy. You know, I've been doing this for, gosh, I don't know, 15 years or something, 16 years now. And when you've been doing it this long and you have a really long wait list, you kind of don't try that hard to please anybody anymore because you don't need to. But what's fascinating, because when you're early as a therapist, when you're really young, you're, you're like, oh my gosh, I, I need everybody to like me. I want them to refer their friends to me. You know, I need to do a good job. And 15 years in, I'm like, look, I just am who I am. If you don't like it, I totally understand. You can see a different therapist. I'll be okay. You'll be okay. (laughs) But fascinatingly, when I tell people in the first therapy session, I go, look, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. And you may not like what I say, but I'm still going to tell you the truth about what I feel about or think about this issue. People are always like, oh, that's exactly, I'm, I'm tired of people like treat me like a baby. I'm tired of people telling me, you know, hey, uh, everything's going to be great. And so people actually are more invested when I'm telling them painful or uncomfortable Mm. opinions or truths than they are if I'm going to treat them like a little, you know, baby that I have to take care of. And so I actually think it's a great thing for relationships to get to the point where each person says, yeah, you know that thing that I said that I, you know, really enjoy doing for you? Yeah, I hate it. I can't stand it. And I don't want to do it anymore. I, that actually, I think that actually builds greater trust. You know, there may be some initial shock, like what? Right. <laughs> uh, but I think in the long run, if you just know with 100% certainty, your spouse is going to just tell you the absolute unabridged truth with compassion. But the truth, I think that actually creates a lot more trust than oh, I, I'm so scared you're going to break in half that I've got to like, you know, tiptoe around you. That doesn't create a lot of good safety, trust or anything good in a relationship. No, there's a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety in the unknown. Yeah. I think that's why, you know, my, my age demographic, we all hate dating because it's completely, this is a whole game of like hiding everything you possibly can and like being very cautious about what you let slip out. And we think, I think some people perceive marriage as like the safe haven where that all ends, but uh, definitely, definitely not. It it does not end. uh, It takes a lot of work to build a relationship that can tolerate the level of honesty that actually creates real intimacy. And that is a, that's a real challenge, right? Because it's like the first time your spouse says, you know, do these pants make me look fat? 
you've got a very difficult uh, dilemma <laughs> ahead of you right there because you have to evaluate which of all the core values of yours uh, are supposed to take precedence. Is it being kind to my spouse? Is it helping them feel good about themselves? Is it just like unabridged honesty? Is it what? How do I answer that question in a way that actually facilitates a greater closeness and connection in the relationship, but doesn't violate my core values, which is I'm not a liar. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you can't pull that off without quite a bit of effort and labor and uh, commitment to a, a relationship in the long run. So, yeah, that's that's a. I feel like that's like an ideal place to get to, but it definitely is going to take a lot to get there. It's a lot, what, of, but that's why people, you know, a lot of people don't get there because they're not willing to sacrifice. They're not willing to stick with it long enough. I mean, you look at this the research on sexual satisfaction. It's really interesting you know, what category of people are having the highest satisfaction in their sexual relationships. And that is married couples in their, like in their fifties and sixties, really the highest level of satisfaction reported. Why? Well, first of all, their frequency is probably a lot higher because they have uh, on average, they have a relatively willing and ready partner there 24 seven. They've been with this person a long time and they've spent decades developing the dynamic, the sexual dynamic between the two of them, where they've really figured things out, what the other person does and does not like, and they know how to make it work. And, and you know, young unmarried couples in their 20s may have all the strength, excitement, stamina, and hormones that, that they could ever ask for, but they have absolutely no clue uh, about really who, whomever they're with in their sexual relationship because they can't have had enough time. There's just there's not enough years uh, between the two of them. So there is something to be said for long-term commitment and relationships, but as we see, it's exceedingly difficult to pull off. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Well, I'd love to switch gears for a second and talk more, um, about some of the questions that I got. So I fielded some questions from social media and things like that before this interview. And a couple of them that came in, um, were specifically more directed towards a person who is struggling with, you know, undesired sexual behavior, specifically in this case, uh, pornography. And one of them was, you know, how do you avoid becoming apathetic towards your addiction when you've tried so many different things? Yeah. Well, that is the great challenge of the single 20 something, uh, in this world today, uh, because porn is, you know, infinitely easy to access and there's, uh, there's plenty out there. Um, and, and real relatively few consequences for most people, unless you're, you know, watching porn at work or, you know, doing seven hours a day. And so you can't finish your school projects and whatnot. Most of the 20 somethings we work with are kind of in that place where they're like, well, I'm not really seeing a lot of actual consequences. I feel bad, which usually is a moral, ethical or religious, you know, mixture of things. It doesn't line up with my values, but human beings, man, we don't tend to change much. Uh, generally speaking, unless it gets really, really uncomfortable. I always give the example to people when there's, if I'm teaching a lecture, I say, look, look, notice the position in the seat you're in right now. If that position does not become uncomfortable to you, exceedingly uncomfortable, 
you'll never move. You'll never move, but your body is constantly, you know, we're dealing with gravity, we're dealing with mass and we're dealing with aging muscles and bones and stuff. You know, eventually that seating position is going to become uncomfortable. And then, and at that exact moment you will move. So um, a lot of times when you're talking about somebody who isn't really experiencing uh, the full brunt of, of what having um, problematic or, it, you know, maybe their behaviors haven't even arisen to the level of problematic because, again, it's not getting in their way other than like there's a mild discomfort, you know, around their core values and their behaviors. But usually people are thinking, well, I'll hammer this out later at some point. I think a lot of people don't, and this is actually true with everything in life. This is not just pornography or, or sexual behaviors, just about everything in life. You, you can tolerate yourself a lot more than your relationships can tolerate. Uh, being in relationships with people is really, really, really difficult because we all have a very particular way of doing things. And we have a way where we think everything is, everything should go this way. It's not until we get into relationships where we're either married or partnered and have children to where we're like, man, I really need to take a look at my stuff. My way of doing things is really making other people's lives difficult. Uh, some people never realize that and they just go around torturing everybody until they die. But most of us at some point go, dang, I need to do something. So in my mind as a clinician, when I'm sitting with a 24 year old guy, who's like, I really wish I could stop watching porn. Usually the first thing I say is, well, let's be really honest here. There's a part of you that wishes you could stop. There's another part of you that wishes other people would stop asking you about it. So you didn't feel so uncomfortable. There's a part of you that absolutely doesn't want to stop at all because it's the one quick fix that you have. That's been trusty, you know, for the last 15 years of your life that can always change your mood instantaneously. One of my colleagues, Dan Solon, that does a lot of the content creation with me. He says, you're not addicted to sex. You're addicted to avoidance. What you're trying to do is avoid uncomfortable emotions. Right? So, uh, I, I think a lot of guys have to come to grips with the fact that our therapy early on is more about helping them to begin to prepare to do things like be honest with the person that they're going to you know, potentially marry in the future to begin to really empathize with uh, what it would be like to live with someone who continued to do what they're doing after they made a commitment uh, to fidelity in the relationship. And the partner saw that as essentially infidelity to begin to develop tools of self-awareness, to begin to develop tools of self-soothing if the, you know, sexual behaviors are used to self-soothe. Uh, but I often see them as basically seeds of change that really don't germinate until they get into a context in which they are forced to deal with it. And that is they're in a relationship now for, you know, for better or for worse, probably for better. Um, when we get into relationships with people, we end up uh, experiencing um, this mystical feeling uh, that we call infatuation, which is some neurochemical smoke bomb uh, that blows up in our heads and we start losing uh, touch with, you know, rational decision-making. And we go, this seems like a great idea. 
When in reality, if you think about how difficult marriage is, how many end up splitting up and how uncomfortable it is while you're married, I don't think it's a very rational choice to get married. And I'm happily married and I have been happily married to the same person for 16 years. I've never been divorced. So I'm not saying, you know, marriage is terrible. Don't do it. What I'm saying is marriage is really, really, really difficult, even if you're enjoying it. Uh, And so thank goodness for infatuation. But I think contextually there, what infatuation does for people is it lets them get into relationships with imperfect, broken, messed up, you know, people with real problems uh, and then start to work on those things. Because otherwise what you end up dealing with is a bunch of people that look at everyone else and go, no way, no. I'm not doing, I'm going to wait until I find a perfect person and then I'll get married. And those people are called single. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think the, you know, the reason I say that is because what happens is you get somebody who's either dating or engaged or early married and they go, you know what? I think it's finally time to take this seriously. I hope they've done some work up until that point so that they're not starting completely from scratch. Um, but uh, I hate to say it, but I'm just, yeah. remember, I'm phenomenological. I only tell, I only see, say what I see. I don't right. speak in terms of ideals. I don't see a whole lot of 20-something-year-old guys putting in the amount of effort, energy, and labor it would take to, you know, which is basically a part-time job to get themselves to a place where they're like, oh man, I got 16 months of, you know, no compulsive sexual behaviors that go against my values. I just don't see that happening, but I do see guys starting the process that they can then continue later into the relationship to the guys that are asking, how do I exit the space of apathy? I think the answer is be honest about what you actually want and which parts of you want what, because then you can say, okay, there's a part of me that doesn't want to quit. There's a part of me that does, but only because I don't like how other people are getting on my case about it. And there's a little part of me that does want to quit because it really doesn't go against my personal core values. Okay, hang on to that part that actually wants change and ask that guy what he's willing to do today. And if all he's willing to do is, you know, be open about it with a roommate or, you know, read a book or go see a therapist, whatever he's willing to do, then do that part. Don't worry about whether, you know, you're going to fix all of your problems. Don't worry about whether, whether you're ever going to quote, get better. Just do what you can do what you're willing to do and assume that those individual daily hour by hour steps will take you in some decent direction that you want to go. But man, be patient with yourself because nobody changes in the time frame they want. Nobody. It, it seems like when, when people jump into a relationship or these, you know, these people who have been struggling with this addiction um, on their own, jump into the relationship, it, it brings into, in, into their world, a bit of accountability, but I think it also brings in purpose because um, they're, they're tied to somebody else other than themselves all of a sudden. I, I feel like if, if there's a way to connect more deeply with a purpose that is similar to, to what you would find in marriage, like connecting with the idea of like, Hey, where do I want to go? Do I want to be a dad? Do I want to be, you know, a, a spouse or a husband or whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what is that going to look like? And trying to spend time even just in your thoughts on that ideal. I think that could instill 
even just some connection with, with something that's going to be a, a greater driving force than just like, Oh, I don't want to do this. Cause if I do, I'm a piece of crap. Yeah. Or, you know, God's mad at me or my parents are going to be annoyed or <laughs> right. whatever it is. I mean, I think you hit the crucial thing about what drives people. Uh, it's easy to believe that hedonism, right? The pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain is the primary motivating factor of human beings. But in reality, we all want to have purpose and we want our lives to be meaningful. At least the vast majority of people do. And so, you know, you can either go around through life hoping to mystically discover the meaning or you can create it yourself. And most of us create meaning through our relationships, whether that is our, what they call the pair bond relationship, and that one person you pick to spend the rest of your life with, hopefully if all goes well, <laughs> or sometimes just those impactful relationships, the person you meet on the street that you do something kind for, a person you teach in a class or a workshop, a, a person that you work with and uh, you know take their shift and maybe it changes their life. You don't know, but that's for the most part where we discover or create our meaning. And so I agree that in a lot of ways, you have to find the person or better said the people. You know, don't, don't rely on even just your spouse. You better mm -hmm. find, you better have more people in your life, but the people to whom you, you want to be accountable, you care what they think, not just because you're afraid that if they don't like you, that you're unlovable and you're going to die alone in the wilderness, but that, that your life somehow matters because you're in their life and they're in yours. That's the kind of stuff that really drives people. So, but I do want to add this caveat. And this is pretty important. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people have this idea and it's this, uh, it's a sort of a denial mechanism. They say, I will change as soon as I find the right person. I'll change when I'm engaged. I'll change when I get married. I'll change. Some guys I'll, I'll say, Oh, uh, you know, tell me about some different times in your life when you've had fluctuations in your pornography use. And they're like, Oh, when I had my first child, I quit for three months. I, I, you know, I was a new man. I thought I was never going to do it again. And then it crept back in. Sometimes as humans, we, we look for events or specific people to change us. And I would say, you know, don't look for something coming down the road. Look in your, look in front of your face. Who is there in your life now that you care about that, uh, that would give your life meaning. And, if you don't have that many people or anybody that really matters to you and you don't see yourself as someone that you want, you know, want to look up to, if that makes sense or want to live for, that's probably your work. The, the level of isolation that that creates is immense. And I don't know if anybody's going to get better at anything if they're that isolated from other people. That's, that's where you need to start. And I think it ties back to the question of really like, how can I be a, a good support person? Well, a good support person is simply becoming a person that, that actually cares about that individual. And how do I find, you know, how do I find a good support person? Cause the idea of the, the reason that an accountability partner is such a flawed idea is that it relaxes that relational caring element that says, Hey, I want you in my life and you want me in yours and your well being is actually important to me. And I think when we find that, then we go, oh, okay, this is an actual, this is an actual quote unquote support person or social support here. Right. Which is why I will say to people, your spouse cannot be your primary um, accountability person. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and they can't even truly be your uh, only support person because no one is capable of offering 24 seven consistent support or anything. This is a huge flaw in so many people's conceptions of what marriage is supposed to be. We put marriage on this pedestal like it's this magical, mythical relationship in which you find the perfect person that somehow meets all of your needs and is going to create this beautiful thing and then you won't need anybody else and that's just not real. It's not realistic. The healthiest marriages that I'm aware of uh, are ones in which they they care about and love each other, they support each other, they sacrifice for each other, but they also have a whole bunch of other friends and family and support people that they can connect and bond with in ways that they both agree to, you know, uh, and say, yeah, I'm comfortable with this. Uh, but yes, when I'm not available for you, please go reach out to somebody else. There are lots of marriages where one person will say, look, I want to be support. I want to be supportive of your change processes, but I don't have the emotional bandwidth to deal with all the stuff you're dealing with. I just can't be here the way you need. So use the resources that are out there. I'm here to love you and care about you, but there's just certain things I can't offer you. That's an honest statement. And I think we need to be able to allow people to not be everything for each other. And, you know, that's another reason that people get so desperate when they find that they're, spouse is involved with, you know, compulsive uh, or problematic sexual behaviors or pornography use is that they're like, wait a second. Um, I was supposed to be your sexual everything. You were supposed to be a hundred percent committed to me. And if this doesn't work out, I'm lost. Everything I've care about and everything I've worked for is ruined. Well, that's a lot of that's a lot of hopes and dreams to put into one individual, and it's a very high risk behavior. And so, I I, I don't think that people should say, eh, "It's fine, do whatever you want." That's not what I'm talking about. You know, we have standards, we have expectations, we have, of course, we have things we want. We have lines in the sand that we're like, "No, you cross this, I'm not willing to stick around." That's that's normal. Everybody does that. But if you put all of your hopes and dreams and all of your expectations into this one person to where if they don't meet, meet what you want, then all is lost, man, you're going to be hurting pretty desperately. So if I'm a wife and I want to support my husband who's got this pornography issue he's trying to get over, I just need to make a decision about to what extent I'm willing to offer emotional support. You know, I'll, here, here's where, here's the, to what extent I can hear your story about your shame or your struggles or your stresses and all of that. And then when I get to the point where I can't anymore, I'm going to say, look, I've reached my limit. I'm, I'm too upset or I'm too distressed myself or I'm angry and I can't offer you anymore. You need to find someone else. And what's really fascinating, and this is, a, it's a statement about therapy in general. Uh, and I'll say it this way. At the end of all my therapy uh, sessions, like a run of therapy with somebody, whether it's 15 sessions or 100, if, if we finish, you know, in a kind of predictable graduation style way, I'll always ask my clients, what were the most meaningful things that happened in this process? Well, disappointingly to me as the clinician, they never say 
the most meaningful thing was this thing you said in this one appointment. It's never me. It's always like, well, this one time this, this happened to me and it has nothing to do with me, but somehow that changed things for them. Or sometimes they'll attribute, they'll be like, one time you said this and I'm like, man, I know for a fact I did not say, I never would say that. <laughs> you know, I know it wasn't me. They attributed it to me, but it wasn't me. And so it's interesting that, you know, my job as a therapist is to be there for people and support them and try to create an environment for change, but rarely am I the driving factor in how change works. It's usually a combination of circumstances and people and things that are outside of people's control that really begin to facilitate change. And so uh, I, I think people need to be very careful or cautious about saying there's one way to help. And mm. the best way the best story I can tell you is my own personal story. My wife and I were doing some of our own marriage counseling a number of years ago, and I'm a pretty stubborn person. I generally perceive myself to be way more right than I am <laughs> in real life. Uh, and so we're doing this therapy and we are driving our home from this appointment. And my wife's like, well, the therapist was trying to convey this to you. And I was like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not right at all. And I, here's all the reasons why I'm right. And interestingly enough, she was not getting through to me. And the, the best way she could support me in that moment was to come completely unglued <laughs> and totally flipped out on me and was like top of her lungs, like, you're not listening to me. And honestly, it wasn't until that very moment that I finally had my eyes open to be like, yeah. I'm actually not listening to her. I'm too busy trying to explain why I'm right. And that was a pivotal moment. So sometimes screaming at the top of your lungs is the most supportive thing you can do for a person. You just don't know what it's going to be. So that's, again, why I say to people, don't get in your head about the only correct way to do things. You test things out. You try it out. Take your risks. Try different things. You don't know what's going to work until it either does or it doesn't. Well said. I, I really appreciate that. And I think it touches again on the point that you made earlier. You know, the guys who just keep trying and being patient with yourself, you know, whether that's just read that book, call that person, do this small thing. It's just keep going so that, you know, the pump is primed. And when that situation arises, that gives you that moment, that aha moment, you know, when somebody screams at you at the top of their lungs, whatever <laughs> it looks like, like that's your moment and you're ready for it because you're just still in the game. You're in the game. It's Louis Pasteur. Chance favors the prepared mind, right? You're, you're, you, if you're preparing and then when that accidental thing comes and hits you, you'll be able to absorb it and do something with it. And if you're sitting around doing nothing and you're like, eh, I just can't care anymore, you're going to miss a lot of opportunities. But guess what? There are also moments where we stop caring. There, there are moments as a parent. And I, you know, I bring up stuff that's unrelated necessarily to pornography because uh, I, everything's all the same to me. It's, yeah. it's every problem is the same problem, right? So uh, there are moments when I will say to my children, this is directly to my actual children, who range from 13 down to three. I will say, guys, I'm done being a parent today. 
I can't take it anymore. I can't stand dealing with all this. I'm out <laughs> and I'm done. <laughs> I'm done for the day and I'm just, because I know it's not anything I try to do after that's going to be bad news for everybody involved. So I'm just quitting for the day. And I think it's even okay to be honest with yourself and say, I'm quitting right now and I'll be back later. <laughs> it's awesome. acceptable because, because it's human. And, and if it's not acceptable to be human, then you will constantly feel like a terrible human because you'll think you're doing it wrong when you're doing yeah. it completely normally. And that's, that's where the problem comes from is their perception of the problem becomes a greater, greater problem than the actual, actual behavior itself and reinforces that principle, which is absolutely true. Well, I don't mean to take your whole night. I really appreciate all the time that we've spent. It's been really fun. I feel like we could keep doing this forever, but uh, for those listening, <laughs> for those listening, it's, it's 11 PM. I caught, <laughs> I got Adam and his pretty busy schedule at the only time I could, but um, Adam, if people want to learn more about um, your clinic and the things that you put out there, where can they go to just learn more about you and, and what you're up to? Sure. So I am reasonably active on Instagram, which is at Dr. Adam Moore. No, no periods or dashes or anything, just Dr. Adam Moore. Um, I have my own podcast called Pocket Therapist, which uh, took about a year long break, but I just started it back up again last oh, cool. week. So it's a good time to get back into it. So Pocket Therapist. Any, anywhere people get their podcasts, it's uh, it's out there. And then um, I run five individual clinics up and down Utah and into Nevada. And it's uh, we're primarily known as Utah Valley Counseling in St. George. We're Alliance Counseling. And in Las Vegas, we are Las Vegas Counseling. <laughs> uh, and the company name is Sela Health. But if they search Adam Moore, Utah, you know, the first uh, seven or eight things that pop up on Google. So they're, they could find me in any of those ways. And I say this at the, at the end of just about any workshop or podcast, and this is a true statement, but almost no one takes me up on it, which is why I can keep saying it. And that is legitimately, if somebody has a question for me, they can direct message me on Instagram. They can find me on Facebook. They can, um, that phone number on my website goes like forwards to my actual cell phone. It's not my cell number, but it goes to my cell phone. So for an initial consult, you know, if, if people have questions, they can call me. I may, I might take two weeks to get back to them, but I will call them back and I will answer anyone's questions and I will not ignore anybody. So, uh, very few people take me up on it because I think they think that I'm lying or that everyone else is calling <laughs> me, but not that there aren't that many people calling. So if you guys have a question, you can call a message or whatever, and I will answer it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And it's, it's true. I, uh, heard Adam speak like one time for a few minutes and I sent him a message <laughs> and immediately <laughs> got a reply. So it's, it's true. The proof is in the pudding, but a pretty fast turnaround too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was definitely, I appreciate it. Um, well, and if you're listening to this podcast and, and you'd like to reach out to me as well, you can go to, uh, Instagram at the art of healing by Trevor. Uh, you can also just visit Trevor, the pretty simple, uh, submit your information or reach out to me in every, any way that you need. But Adam, thanks again for joining me. And, yeah. uh, I appreciate your time. Absolutely. At the time of this recording, I, Trevor Hansen, am a master's level student therapist, and I'm not a licensed therapist. I practice therapy under the supervision of fully licensed therapists. This show is not therapy, nor is it a substitute for therapy.